Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I have to say it's really lovely to be introduced by a Dominican who uh, is named after St. Philip Neri. I think that that brings together some very special worlds, especially when we think about Newman in particular. So I couldn't have been more happy to have you as my introducer. Thank you very much, Father. I'd also like to thank Father Simon and the organizers of this conference. It was um, a privilege and a delight to be invited to come speak to you today and be part of this conference. And I have to say, the last time I was here at the Angelicum, and it was also my first time, there was a, a day conference that was, that was organized by Father Thomas Joseph White on Newman um, in the lead up to Newman's canonization. And the focus was on Newman as a prophet and a saint for our times. So it's one doubly wonderful to again be back and to be speaking about Newman again. So the title of my paper is John Henry Newman's Art of the End. And I hope, as you will see through my paper, that a subtitle or an alternative title for this talk could be Newman's Detached Aesthetics. Recently, there has been interest in literary critical approaches to Victorian religion in thinking about Newman's detachment, or what appears to be his detached style. Most recently, in Victorian literature and culture, Angus Lettingham has proposed that Newman presents to us a distant and provisional voice, especially as modeled in certain difficulties felt by Anglicans, published in 1850, and of course his Apologia, published in 1864. Lettingham identifies certain rhetorical patterns in Newman, such as self-quotation to, to establish a detachment from his past life and from past beliefs, thereby dramatizing impartiality. From this, Lettingham reaches various conclusions including, he says, the idea that Newman's detached practice throws the concept of self into a certain kind of doubt, and that this has implications for his faith as well as his views on art full stop. Lettingham doesn't stop there. He proceeds to uh, conclude that Newman must be a skeptic in the liberal vein that Newman himself critiques in the Apologia. However, detached careful thinking is not a relativistic skepticism in Newman. Rather, this kind of detached, careful self-examination was, for Newman, representative of all kinds of knowing and searching, and a sign of an active, responsible approach to the reality that, to, to paraphrase Augustine, we are to ourselves a question. For Newman, the self is a mystery, and we, in a sense, receive ourselves from God. And so therefore, not only our attachments and our interests and our desires, but also a stepping back, a certain kind of detached self-examination, which paradoxically cares for the self, is also required. In this paper, I'd like to redress something of that approach, because I do think that, that the claim of Newman's detachment needs to be further qualified, especially in light of the rich spiritual history of his life, which is so profoundly evidenced in his writings, and which, in the end, is eschatological in character. Newman himself often admitted to the careful way in which he turned and returned to various questions and concerns. He had a kind of forensic um, ability to analyze. As he confesses in Rise and Progress, his methods, while often immethodical, were also exacting, focusing on assessing a constellation of ideas, impressions, and personal experiences in light of the truth which he observed tends to dawn on us gradually. That said, I would propose that Newman's certain detached approach to theological questions and even past personal experiences is not about ambivalence towards belief personal experience or the truth, quite the opposite. Instead, it stems from his careful attempt to distinguish the truth at hand, even while we live, as he so often put it, in a world of shadows and images. For those of us familiar with his tombstone, the English translation of his epitaph reads, out of shadows and images unto the truth. Newman composed this short epitaph on his 90th birthday, shortly before his death and it incisively expresses the contingent human condition, this side of the veil. But it also expresses his theological hope, his end-driven approach to life, an approach which exhibited his understanding of belief as a continual, gradual detachment from the things we might like 
towards the things that we do ultimately desire. For him, desire is something that we often uncover within ourselves over time. We learn how to love what we are made for, and more precisely, who we are made for. The end of Newman's searching, that is the goal or the task or the purpose, the end of his searching was eschatological in character, as it is with any Christian, ideally. However, there are a few examples in late modernity of a thinker who exhibits theological hope and reliance on Christ's promise to come again with such constant interest and care. His writing is saturated by the sense of the end and of how things stand in relation to the question of our ultimate end and purpose. An end and purpose which requires a detachment from the things of this world. For Newman, however, detachment was not apathy. As the late Ian Carr, may he rest in peace, reminded us frequently, Newman's writing of both artistic and pastoral forms was usually occasional sparked by a specific occasion, circumstance, or concern, which required some point of doctrinal clarification or personal self-examination. Usually, however, for the benefit of a wider public than just Newman himself. He always had in mind his public, be it his students, his friends, a congregation, Charles Kingsley, I'll get to him in a moment. Newman was constantly interested in the sake of spiritual, the, the, good, the spiritual goods for which he was writing. As one of the most famous examples, his writing of the Apologia was something of a crucible. His desire to answer Charles Kingsley's accusations arose in large part from his felt duty that these false accusations were levied not just against him, but also against the rep reputation of Roman Catholic clergy, his brother priests in England. Attempting to balance his pastoral duties while gathering evidence in order to justify um, himself in the face of Kingsley's attack, attacks took quite a toll on Newman and distracted him from various pastoral duties which he felt um, uh, very worried about. In fact, in one letter he wrote that his fingers had been walking nearly 20 miles a day in his attempt to write, out, uh, to, write to his friends to ask for information to help him support his cause. Some writing sessions required Newman to sit, as, sit at his desk, writing close to 22 hours with barely any breaks. He was trying to manage a lot when he was writing his defense in the Apologia. The remarkable degree to which Newman threw himself into his work exhibits the characteristic dedication to, and yet also detachment from, the task or situation at hand. To justify himself to Kingsley, Newman, in a sense, gave himself up and over to the task, he was at once the subject of various forms of self-scrutiny, and yet also keenly aware that this task of writing was not for the purpose or pleasure of enjoying writing, but rather it was a kind of pastoral and ethical duty, he felt. The ethical dimensions of writing and of art overall tend to be the aspects which most interest Newman across his whole life. I would suggest that this is especially why there is a marked aspect of paradox in Newman's writings. He throws himself into his work. He models an almost forensic capacity, as I've said, to observe. His abilities to read and interpret the various movements of the heart and the interpenetration of thought and feeling are almost unparalleled. This style of care and depth of feeling, of detached observation tempered by a depth of personalism, led James Joyce to declare that nobody has ever written English prose that can be compared with Newman's. Paradoxically, Newman was detached and relational all at once. But as Ratzinger, drawing from Augustine, often stressed, paradox does not signify contradiction, but contrast. There are various contrasts in Newman, but they all turn on the question, what is of ultimate value? Newman's reply would be contemplation of God in the beatific vision. In his sermon, The Thought of God, The Stay of the Soul, Newman preached that human happiness consists in the contemplation of God. The soul of man, he says, is made for the contemplation of its maker, and nothing short of that high contemplation is its happiness. That whatever it may possess besides, it is unsatisfied till it is vouchsafed God's presence and lives in the light of it. While this sermon comes from his Catholic period and from the volume Plain and Parochial Sermons, the early Anglican sermons of Newman are also shaped by an eschatological urgency, 
an urgency which, which has been picked up to a degree by scholars of Newman's Anglican period. However, what has not received sufficient attention is the degree to which Newman's aesthetic detachments, or his eschatological aesthetics, are remarkably evident even in his early poetry. Some of Newman's clearest and earliest theological work is done in verse. Paradoxically, he often turns to the arts in an effort to express their insufficiencies. The artist yearns for the transcendent, which is within and yet beyond this world. Art, in various modes and through various means, can point to that which exceeds the limits of language and the forms of art themselves. This paradox is certainly operative in his novels, like Callista, and at one level, the dream of Gerontius, like Dante's Commedia, is about describing in language and image that which by necessity exceeds both. While Newman's later writings very obviously tilted towards the end of all things, there is also a vast wealth of early material from his mid-Oxford days, which highlights the degree to which he was thinking along eschatological lines. Awed by the hidden and flaunting beauties of Oxford, the young Newman, when he arrived in Oxford, turned in earnest to writing poetry during his undergraduate years, even co-founding a poetry periodical called The Undergraduate. One of his earliest student poems, Solitude, dates from the 1818 Michaelmas term. In it, the dreamy yet discerning Newman yokes together romantic reverie with a remarkably mature and detached Christian piety thereby serving as an early example of the kind of poetic sensibility that would later characterize Tractarian aesthetics. Solitude was written over a decade before the Oxford movement emerged in any straightforward way. There is in stillness oft a magic power, the 17-year-old wrote, which calms the breast and lowers competing passions. It also serves as an influence through which diviner feelings can arise, leading us, he says, to the inner or heavenly love which only finds description if we resort to musical analogies. Beauty is a mystic sound to the young Newman, which breathes such tones only angels can sing, and which only solitary saints can hear this side of the veil. The need to withdraw from the world in order to appreciate it, in order to stand in right relation to it, remains a central and abiding theme throughout Newman's writing, and especially his poetry. We especially see how this is the case in his poem, Art and Nature, composed in 1826, which, which with a combination of intensity of feeling and intensity of purpose, stresses the insufficiencies of art. In drawing on the resources of poetry to explain poetry's limits, Newman models a kind of art of the end, specifically a practical outworking of the end or nature of life on the one hand, and the end or nature of creativity on the other. An inheritor of the romantic sensibility, Newman, like Keats in particular, was all too aware that art could never escape the end of life, the end of all things. One of poetry's powers is to point beyond itself, to, to ameliorate the blows of death. However, Newman wishes to do more than pacify. He wants an answer to the problems of death, to the problem of purpose and pain in human life. As a result, his searching verse, like his searching conscience, takes no prisoners as it explores what might be the end of all things. To get a sense of the way Newman recast romantic sensitivities in the light of Christian eschatology, it's worth looking at a series of stanzas from his long poem on art and nature. It is quite the discourse in verse, so even though I will be quoting, uh, there will be a few slides worth of this poem, but it is, um, I haven't exhausted all the stanzas on offer. So I'm going to read it out loud so you get a sense of what Newman is uh, talking about. Man goeth forth, he says, with reckless trust upon his wealth of mind, as if in self a thing of dust creative skill might find. He schemes and toils, stone, wood, and ore, subject or weapon of his power. By arch and spire, by tower girt heights, he would his boast fulfill. By marble births and mimic lights, yet lacks one secret still. Where is the master hand shall give to breathe, to move, to speak, to live? O oh, take away this shade of might, the puny toil of man, and let great nature in my sight unroll her gorgeous plan. I cannot bear those sullen walls, those eyeless towers, those tongueless halls. Art labored toys of highest name, 
are nerveless, cold, and dumb. And man is fitted but to frame a coffin or a tomb. Well suits when sense has passed away, such lifeless works, the lifeless clay. Here, let me sit where wooded hills skirt yon far-reaching plain, while cattle bank its winding rills and suns embrown its grain. Such prospect is to me right dear, for freedom, health, and joy are here. There is a spirit ranging through the earth, the stream, the air, 10,000 shapes, garbs ever new, that busy one doth wear. In color, scent, and taste, and sound, the energy of life is found. A soul prepared his will to meet, full fixed his work to do, not labored into sudden heat, but inly born anew. So living nature, not dull art, shall plan my ways and rule my heart. There are echoes of Keats and Wordsworth throughout this poem. Yet here, Newman adopts aspects of Romanticism in order to append them. Newman is not just praising the natural world. He is seeing in it the source, and he is seeing that it is not the source and summit of meaning and value, although Wordsworth would like to protest the contrary, especially in the prelude. Rather, Newman sees in living nature, that is to say the life of grace, the great fixed work of God, which far supersedes and transcends dull art. This poem models Newman's detached aesthetics, even though he was quite young, he was around 25 when he wrote this, and shows his understanding that the beauties of this world are passing away. But this detachment is not a radical, skeptical rejection of the self, as Lightingham might, have suggested, might suggest. Rather, it is an acknowledgement of the self as a deep mystery, as a, be as a being who must learn through seeking and finding the ways and rules of the heart, which art might express but cannot satisfy. All that noted, it is important to consider that Newman cared deeply for the arts. As Michael Hurley has recently reminded us, Newman is among one of the most prominent devotional Victorian writers who was convinced that certain art forms, poetry in particular, could say and do things that otherwise cannot be said or done. In fact, as I will discuss shortly, Newman discerned in the arts an invaluable road to seeking and finding truth. Nonetheless, he possessed a profound attachment from human achievement, artistic or otherwise. As the poem tells us, the gift of human life, of the soul preparing God's will to meet, as noted on this slide, is the ultimate activity to which the human person is called. Consequently, it is the lives of the saints and Christ's redemptive work that Newman in which Newman locates the truly artistic and artful, and I'll discuss that more later on. A great admirer of artistic forms, Newman understood that there was an inherent relationality within the making and sharing of art. This relationality speaks to the inner depths of what it means to be human and on the way. In a deeply touching moment in his Apologia, for example, he praises the poetry of John Keeble's The Christian Year, saying that his encounter with devotional verse in Oxford helped integrate aspects of his emotional and intellectual life. Tellingly, it was Keeble's theology in verse and not a tract which first made Newman alive to what he describes as the sacramental system. And here's an extended quote from the Apologia where he explains the formative power of poetry on his spiritual life. The Christian Year by John Keeble made its appearance in 1827. It is not necessary and scarcely becoming to praise a book which has already become one of the classics of the language. It was constantly being reprinted and um, there were several, there were dozens of editions in Keeble's and Newman's own lifetime of this book. When the general tone of religious literature was so nerveless and impotent as it was at that time, Keeble struck an original note and woke up in the hearts of thousands a new music, the music of a school long unknown in England. Keeble was a medieval uh, revivalist. Nor can I pretend to analyze in my own instance the effect of religious teaching so deep, so pure, so beautiful. I have never till now tried to do so. Yet I think I am not wrong in saying that the two main intellectual truths which it brought home to me were the same two which I had learned from Butler, though recast in the creative mind of my new master, Keeble. The first of these was, was what may be called, in a large sense of the word, the sacramental system. 
That is, the doctrine that material phenomena are both the types and the instruments of real things unseen. A doctrine which embraces in its fullness not only what Anglicans as well as Catholics believe about sacraments properly so called, but also the article of the communion of saints in its fullness, and likewise the mysteries of the faith. Here, Newman likens Keeble's poetry to music, which affects in his hearers a rousing of the heart, bringing home intellectual truths. It is not a coincidence that Newman brings together praise of poetry and a discussion of the Christian sacramental system. The two are in, sympathet are in sympathetic um, union, or at least inclined towards each other. As Jacques Maritain notes in Creative Art and Intuition, there is a deep sympathy between the arts and divine revelation as they incline towards the incarnate. This is, in one sense, a remarkably Newmanian insight, as Newman himself discerned in the arts the ability to show, according to specific agreements between idea, form, and desire, the concrete or incarnate reality of truth. This point leads me to the second and final half of my paper, in which I explore at length how Newman's attention to the end translates into a kind of art of the end in his own writing and thinking. For Newman, the promise of transformation guaranteed by the doctrines concerning the last things is often uniquely communicated through the arts. He believed that for all their dangers and insufficiencies, the arts carry great motive powers of persuasion and were enjoyable in and of themselves. Although a consummate violinist himself and someone who cared deeply about sacred music, Newman is most often found, however, expounding on the value of literature and why it matters. This is partly because of his own circumstances. From a young age, we see Newman devouring literature and commenting on it in his diaries. He was moved by the powers of speech. In a lecture he delivered on the nature of literature, he observed that the power of speech is a gift as great as any that can be named, if by means of words the secrets of the heart are brought to light, pain of soul is relieved, hidden grief is carried off, sympathy conveyed, counsel imparted, experience recorded, and wisdom perpetuated. It will not answer to make light of literature, he argues, or to neglect its study. Rather, we may be sure that, in proportion as we master it in whatever language and imbibe its spirit, we shall ourselves become, in our own measure, the ministers of like benefit to other, to those who are united to us by social ties and are within the sphere of our personal influence. In this, Newman proposes that the arts, and especially the literary, are a kind of link to the work that we should do as members of the communion of saints. We can build up our social ties and positively influence those within our personal circles. In Apologia, Newman continually turns and returns to examples of different books he read and conversations he had, which led him to his ascent to not only a definite creed, but also to his growing belief in a sacramental system, Marian dogma, and eventually those articles of faith belonging to the Roman Catholic Church. There are various accounts of how Newman's reading helped inform his faith. Reinhard Hutter's recent John Henry Newman on truth and its counterfeits comes to mind, as does Thomas Bow's account of Newman in Minding the Modern. In Minding the Modern, Pfau notes that Newman's poetic sensibility helped further confirm in him that over and against Enlightenment hyper-rationalism and individualism, the sense of relatedness and obligation to the other is, as Pfau says, sanctioned by the vertical rapport, however latent, tenuous, and or susceptible to misconstrual and neglect that all persons have with the divine logos. However, what has not been considered is the degree to which Newman's initial childhood sense of a vertical rapport with the divine, a relationship between the self and a wider world, between the self, other persons, and spiritual beings, was shaped by his absorption of not high literature, but rather romantic tales and gothic horror stories. For all of his particularities about the arts, and he was known to be quite idiosyncratic at times, he took excessive issue with Pugin, for example, Newman was not elitist in his interest in the arts, let alone literature. He could be remarkably democratic, holding the ethical potential of art as its highest value. Deeply sensitive to the different ways in which persons arrive at the one truth, Newman admitted that a wide range of popular art forms could hold legitimate sway over the imagination, and perhaps for the good. 
From Gothic romances to newspapers, from tracts to educational manuals, Newman discerned in the Victorian world of quick print an abiding metaphysical hunger for meaning, for transcendent reality. He was also equally willing to admit that moral edification and a desire for God could emerge from unsuspecting sources, often working on us without our notice, and yet speaking to an inner longing deep within our own mysterious hearts. At times, his artistic preferences even went against the grain of critical opinion of his day. For instance, Newman confessed in a letter to Gerard Manley Hopkins that he preferred the didactic Thomas Carlyle to the sprawling, searching novels of George Eliot. I don't agree with Newman on this point. And so it should not be surprising that there was in Newman enough openness and detachment to confess that not just Virgil, not just scripture and high literature um, were influences or roads for him in his early life. As he says in the Apologia, he devoured not only Virgil, but Anne Radcliffe and the Arabian tales of romance and adventure. In the opening of his Apologia, he recounts how his adolescent love of romantic Gothic literature helped initiate the development of his earliest thoughts and feelings on religious subjects. In particular, this love confirmed in him an eschatological hope, a hope that the world is part of a divine plan and alive with spiritual influences, with agents and powers, with angels or hidden ministers of divine providence operating beyond the play of the senses. In reading the Arabian tales, for example, he discovered in himself the deep wish that angels were true. My imagination ran on unknown influences, on magical powers and talismans, he recalls. I thought life might be a dream, or I an angel, and all this world a deception, my fellow angels by a playful device concealing themselves from me and deceiving me with the semblance of a material world. A steady diet of Gothic romances, including Scott, Porter, and Radcliffe, also led Newman to unconsciously absorb something of a Roman or Catholic aesthetic interest. I say unconscious because he only came to a more definite certitude about the influence of his childhood reading during his discernment period at Littlemore when he was in his mid-40s. It was then that Newman revisited the copy books of his school days only to discover that at the age of nine he had decorated the front page of his first Latin verse book with a de detailed sketch of a rosary. He describes this rediscovery at great length and in detail. Uh, just so you can have a visual, I'll just show you the manuscript first. That is quite nice handwriting for a nine-year-old. Um, and I need to thank the Birmingham Archives um, at the Birmingham Oratory for very kindly sending this image to me very last minute. It is not in wide circulation, um, and so um, I'm very grateful that they've allowed me to share this with you today. And here's a close-up of Newman's little rosary that he drew. Um, just up there. It's not a fully enclosed rosary, it's a series of beads. It almost looks like a necklace, and then there's a cross at the center. This is what he has to say about the experience. I had written in the first page in my schoolboy hand, John H. Newman, February 11, 1811, verse book. Then follows my first verses. Between verse and book, I have drawn the figure of a solid cross upright, and next to it is what may indeed be meant for a necklace, but what I cannot make out to be anything else than a set of bees suspended with a little cross attached. I suppose I got these ideas from some romance or from some religious picture. But the strange thing is how, among the thousand objects which meet a boy's eyes, these in particular should so have fixed themselves in my mind that I made them thus practically my own. I am certain there was nothing in the churches I attended or the prayer books I read to suggest them. It must be recollected, he reminds us, that Anglican churches and prayer books were not decorated in those days as I believe they are now. That's understatement for you. Uh, it's partly because of Newman that there was the revival of uh, neo-medieval uh, devotional practices and um, art in uh, uh, Anglican churches. This rediscovery, he says, here, actually, we'll, we'll linger on the little rosary sketch till we have to move. This rediscovery of his verse book and the image of the rosary took his breath away with surprise. Why was it such a surprise? As I've just noted, and as Newman himself reminds us, the Tractarian or Oxford movement played a pivotal role in renewing and enriching the liturgical and devotional life of the Anglican Church, of reviving the sense of the incarnational, which is so crucial to Christianity. Newman, as a child, did not enjoy the kind of devotional art and practices that would come to characterize the liturgical life of high Anglicans, all those smells and bells. 
By contrast, certain devotional writers of the mid to later Victorian period, like Cristina Rossetti, benefited from this uh, heritage, uh, this revived heritage of uh, uh, um, medieval Catholic devotional devotions in Anglican life. Moreover, as Ian Carr reminds us, Newman's intellectual conversion to Roman Catholicism did for the most part precede a more experiential and imaginative discovery of Catholicism. Carr elaborates, saying that while Newman knew a very great deal about the early church, he knew extraordinarily little about contemporary Catholicism, apart from its formal doctrines and teaching. In 1835, for example, two years after the formal beginning of the Oxford movement, Newman had admitted to wanting to fall across a Romanist to get into their system, but there were various social and political obstacles involved, and for a time, that desire remained unmet. That noted, scholars have not sufficiently acknowledged the degree to which the motive powers of verse and Gothic tales, which were saturated by a fascination with especially Italian Roman Catholicism, worked on the imagination of a young Newman, confirming in him strong impressions of the supernatural. And you constantly see this as a theme in many of the great Victorian novels, especially George Eliot, or if you go into the Edwardian period and you look at things like uh, novels like Ian Forster's A Room with a View, if you want an incarnational Christian experience, you go to Italy. While such confirmations that he received about the value of the spiritual and that he desired the spiritual, that he received in these novels, while these confirmations were ultimately insufficient to bring him to a position of creedal faith and an assent to doctrine, they certainly helped steer Newman away from growing flirtations with materialism and atheism. Newman stresses this point in the Apologia, recalling how at the age of 15, he was particularly intrigued by aspects of Hume's thought, especially as found in his critique of miracles, and bragged to his father that he was copying out French verses, perhaps Voltaire's, in denial of the immortality of the soul. In doing so, Newman shares that he debated with himself, saying something like, how dreadful, but how plausible, when he pondered that the soul might not exist, as he copied out, at about the age of 14, French proto-existentialist verse. But the deep impressions from romances and tales of history, as well as his read, careful reading of scripture, um, gave Newman the sense that the world must be crammed with invisible angels and mischievous spirits who worked their influence. This sensibility spoke to his heart before doctrine helped integrate his intellectual life with his emotional one. Of course, Gothic tales or the force of romantic fictions or even great Virgilian poetry were not sufficient in and of themselves to confirm or affirm for Newman the nature of reality. He says this frequently throughout his writings. Let alone, they could, they could not uh, delineate the revealed mystery of the eschatological dimensions of reality but they were flickering shadows which suggested such aspects of reality make sense to the deep longings of the heart, the longings for adventure, and a promise of things lying beyond the senses. Indeed, Newman held in Grammar of Ascent that the sympathetic, searching, discerning, and dialogical modes of thought which the literary affords and encourages are essential for the development of the notional category of credence, a category which is tested by lived experience, and, if it passes the test, widens out into potential ascent to truth, or what Newman so famously calls real ascent. For Newman, credences, our opinions, suppositions, experiences, can only be true if they can withstand the ethical. Namely, if, as ideas and sensibilities, they can translate into, they can translate into build up, and support reality and daily life. Newman defines credence and grammar of ascent as those opinions and impressed facts by which, in the man of the world and in the recluse alike, our bare and barren nature is overrun and diversified from without with a rich and living clothing. Credence, he goes on to say, ensures that we, quote, become possessed of the principles, doctrines, sentiments, facts, which constitute useful and especially liberal knowledge, authentic liberal knowledge. They keep us up to the mark in literature, in the arts, in history, and in public matters. They give us in great measure our morality, our politics, our social code, our art of life. They supply the standards of thought and action. They are our mutual understandings, our channels of sympathy, our means of cooperation, and the bond of our civil union. However, until these ideas touch our lives, our personal experience, their truth remains presumed, but neither tested nor verified. 
Newman elaborates, saying that even the great classics are but rhetorical commonplaces, neither better nor worse than a hundred others, until the powerful truths of certain stories or pieces of art come home to us. To illustrate his point, Newman compares and contrasts the experience of reading as a child and then as an adult. And here's a, a lengthy quote um, for us to consider. Let us consider how differently young and old are affected by the works of some classic author, such as Homer or Horace. Passages which to a boy are but rhetorical commonplaces, neither better nor worse than a hundred others, which any clever writer might supply, which he gets by heart and thinks very fine and imitates as he thinks successfully in his own flowing versification, at length come home to him when long years have passed and he has had experience of life and they pierce him as if he had never before known them with their sad earnestness and vivid exactness. Then he comes to understand how it is that lines, the birth of some chance morning or evening at an Ionian festival or among the Sabine Hills, have lasted generation after generation for thousands of years with a power over the mind and a charm which the current literature of his own day, with all its obvious advantages, is utterly unable to rival. Perhaps this is the reason of the medieval opinion about Virgil, as if a prophet or magician, his single words and phrases, his pathetic half-lines, giving utterance as the voice of nature herself to that pain and weariness, yet hope of better things, which is the experience of her children in every time. Here, Newman proposes that real life, with all its concomitant hopes, fears, and desires, is that which tests literature and tends to influence what kind of stories stay with us, not only in our own lives, but across generations and even civilizations. We can only discern literary influences retrospectively, he proposes. And this is a remarkably romantic idea. Poetry, Wordsworth tells us, is emotion recollected in tranquility. Literature, and by extension the various arts accordingly, inspire hope of better things, although these better things lie beyond art's power to grant. Art in and of itself, as profound and striking as it is, remains remarkably insufficient for Newman, and this is paradoxical and part of its motive power. Art that communicates truth about reality is, for Newman, teleological or end-driven. It can encourage a greater depth of intellectual searching after the truth, a widening of the heart, and a desire for deeper personal relation with the divine. Even more specifically, art which affirms and deepens perceptions of reality will, for Newman, be inevitably eschatological in character, even if it's an implicit um, eschatology. That is to say, it will deepen our sense of the insufficiencies of this world in its current state. It seems to carry within itself the latent sign that our world is in need of redemption from a source within yet beyond it. Interestingly, Seamus Heaney, one of my favorite poets, has a very similar view. In the Redress of Poetry, he writes that art seems to inherently clamor after redemption. The poet seems motivated, he says, to try and balance the scales, and more than that, to recover or redress some aspect of the Eden we wished we could regain. This has a series of derivative effects, a primary one being the degree to which Newman shows that, attach, that detachment from the world is not a disdain for the world, but as Augustine would put it, an exercise of ordo amoris, an ordering of loves, often motivated by our loves for the things in life. Newman dramatizes this to striking effect near the opening of the dream of Gerontius when he especially draws on the illuminations which poetic forms and images afford in, to allow us to meditate on the greater divine illumination of revelation, which operates within and beyond history, earthliness, and poetic inspiration itself. After dying, the soul of Gerontius encounters an angel and hears it singing a melody which, Gerontius says, could not have been heard with his earthly ears. Gerontius and the angel begin a dialogue Gerontius confesses to the man that now that he has left the world behind, he can see, hear, and perceive things which art could only imitate in shadows and half images. Moreover, he supposes that it is only in dying that he can properly value the splendor of God's creation. Now know I surely that I am at length out of the body. Had I part with earth, I never could have drunk those accents in and not have worshipped as a god the voice that was so musical. But now I am so whole of heart, so calm, so self-possessed, 
with such a full content and with a sense so apprehensive and discriminate as no temptation can intoxicate. In dying, Gerontius has been liberated from attachment to lesser goods and, then can, and can therefore appreciate things in right relation, giving them their due. He suggests that if he had heard the splendor of the angel's song while on earth, he would have worshipped the angel. And so there's a certain mercy in God withholding certain splendors from us until we're the other side of the veil and we can actually appreciate things properly because we are totally detached, because we are paradoxically so firmly attached to God. Here, Newman's focus is on what is required for the human person to see things clearly, namely death in this life and entrance into the beatific vision. His own poems and novels turn on and return to this theme. Callista is, at one level, about how even the most beautiful artistic gifts of the classical world are laid at the feet of the humble carpenter, who is in, but not of, the world. At the back of all of Newman's writings on the arts, then, is an interest in the degree to which the desire for the beautiful is not attained by the making and beholding of remarkable art. It is, rather, in participation in the liturgy, in acts of prayer, in acts of definite service, that Newman discerned the emergence of the splendor of beauty. Art as an aid to, or at the service of, these activities is especially praised by Newman, but art for art's sake is roundly critiqued and rejected throughout his own writings, and rather explicitly at times in his letters and sermons. Newman discerned in the wider aesthetic movement of the mid to late Victorian period certain moral problems, since it advanced the creed that art was for the sake of art only, and to Newman's mind, earthly beauty possessed a certain danger. In Idea of a University, he warns of beauty which leads, quote, to nothing beyond itself. He elaborates on this warning at length, noting that the arts are so beautiful that there is the danger, quote, that they are apt to forget their place and instead of being servants will aim at becoming principals. He advises self-knowledge and caution when appraising the creation indeed of high genius, of what he calls, of int what he calls intense and dazzling genius and soul-absorbing beauty, in which, however, there was nothing which subserved the cause of religion. Newman's focus on art is always ethical and relational, rather than aesthetic only. He appreciates the attractions of earthly beauty as limited and limiting if they distract from the other, from the teleological purposes of things. In other words, Newman seeks, in idea of the university and elsewhere, to reintroduce ethics, but also metaphysics, to aesthetics. Let me give some context. So during this period in the um, mid to late 19th century, there was the development of the aesthetic movement, and one of its chief principal philosophers was Walter Pater. Pater would write some years after idea of the university in a book called The Renaissance, a creed for the aesthetic movement, which roundly rejected the metaphysical possibility of beauty, or that it really mattered if it did have that property. His defense of his position is radically proto-phenomenological and proto-existential to the nth degree. Specifically, he recommends that we come to terms with the fact of death by immersing ourselves wholeheartedly in the beauty and passing pleasures afforded by an artful life in the here and now. Pater promotes what Charles Taylor would later call the imminent frame, proposing that a suspension of metaphysics, ultimately even of ethics, affords the creative artist the wide expanse of space and time in which to revel in the passing beauties life affords before we head to the tomb. Drawing from Rousseau's confessions, Pater proposes French decadence as an example of how to stand or pose in the face of death. Quote, we are all under sentence of death, but with a sort of indefinite reprieve, he says. We have an interval and then our places know us no more. Some spend this interval in listlessness, some in high passions, the wisest in art and song. For our own change lies in expanding that interval and in getting as many pulsations as possible into the given time. Of this wisdom, he concludes, the poetic passion, the desire of beauty, the love of art for art's sake has the most. Mindful of this growing aesthetic philosophy, of which Pater is the principal representative, Newman offered an alternative which simultaneously acknowledged the depths of earthly beauty and its limits to satisfy the human person, who remains interminably restless without engagement with the transcendent, with what Fowl would call the vertical rapport that all persons have with the divine logos. In fact, it was Newman's careful and generous appraisal of the powers and dangers of earthly beauty in light of Christian doctrine which even led Pater for a time to revisit some of his reservations regarding Christianity. 
Newman does more than critically engage, albeit typically in implicit mode, with the emerging decadence and the aesthetic movement. He also offers alternative artistic examples and models. Throughout Idea of University and in his later writings, Newman clearly shows preference for the simplicity and suggestiveness of paintings in which the very limitations of human contingency in the face of the divine mysteries seem to shape the devotional aesthetic itself. He preferred pre-modern art forms which sought to shadow out the invisible, as he put it, to function as an instrument of reverence and modesty through simplicity of form. Newman does, um, he especially appeals to the example of Fra Angelico as an artist who embodies the mystic sense which keeps the romantics and Pater so admired while resisting the transvaluation of this mystic sense into a kind of pose. In fact, such a thing just would not have been thinkable for Angelico, that art was posing before death. Art was preparing for death and moving beyond this world of shadows. Other temptations might have come Angelico's way, as they do to any artist, but his art is so thoroughly metaphysically attuned, so detached from creatures and therefore interested in them, um, and so able to perceive them for who they are. Guy Nichols observes that for Newman, Angel Fra Angelico possessed an unprecedentedly serene wisdom, which outstripped the pagan spirit of Greece and Rome, as Nichols puts it. This serene wisdom translated into an aesthetic of humility, which, Nichols continues, suggests that which is beyond and not just that which is directly portrayed. As importantly for Newman, the beauty of Fra Angelico's art inspired in the young St. Philip Neri a sincere devotion which often led him beyond the world of the artfully splendid and socially comfortable and out into the streets of Rome to serve Christ among his people and to found the oratory. Neri himself, who was reported to have been gifted by the Holy Spirit with a radical expansion of his actual physical heart, became to Newman a living artwork. The human heart conformed to the divine will helps beautify the world as it prepares for its consummation. In his introduction to the lives of the English saints, Newman wrote that the saints in general have absorbed the eschatological reality and from this absorption model a Christian way of seeing, being, and doing in the world. And here's a quote. The Christian lives in the past and in the future and in the unseen. In a word, he lives in no small measure in the unknown. And it is one of his duties and a part of his work to make the unknown known, to create within him an image of what is absent, and to realize by faith what he does not see. For this purpose, he is granted certain outlines and rudiments of the truth, and from thence he learns to draw it out into its full proportions and its substantial form, to expand and complete it. Whether it be the absolute and perfect truth, or truth under a human dress, or truth in such a shape as is most profitable for him, and the process by which the word which has been given him returns not void, but brings forth and buds and is accomplished and prospers, is meditation. A fruit of this meditative approach to life, shown in the lives of the saints, is the shining out of a life of definite service, of care and concern for the other. It signals an agopic turn, a movement from the self towards God, through life lived for the other. Newman's greatest counter to the decadent movement would be, I think, his Stations of the Cross and general writings on the lives of the saints, particularly his meditations and devotions on Mary's example and on the cheerful, ego-exiting energy of St. Philip. Surely, Ratzinger had Newman in mind when he wrote in The Feeling of Things, The Contemplation of Beauty, that we are brought into closer contact with the beauty of Christ himself when the world of beauty created by faith and light that shines out from the faces of the saints through whom his own light becomes visible is made manifest throughout history. For Newman, definite service, prayer, and liturgical worship spur yet transcend the arts. In these contexts, art is not only enjoyed, but put to a certain kind of ministry or service, thereby functioning as icons instead of idols. Newman never uses the term icon, but it is helpful here as a term to define what art in the service of the transcendent could be called. And this is along the lines of Jean-Luc Marion's writing on icons and idols. It is also especially helpful to turn to the image of the icon since Newman expounds at length on the real possibility that earthly beauty can become an idol. And historically, as well as theologically, the icon has been understood as diametrically opposed to the idol. 
Within and beyond the world, guaranteeing the already and not yet of history, the Eucharist is the sacrament of redemption, of the end of the cosmos. As Newman puts it in his notes for a homily on May 25th, 1856, the Sunday within the octave of Corpus Christi, the Holy Eucharist is how God counteracts time, he says, and the world. It, the blessed sacrament, is not past, it is not away. It is this that makes devotion in lives. It is the life of our religion. We are brought into an unseen world. The Eucharist in Newman's writing, and especially in the writing of others he influenced, including the Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, becomes the analogical measure and value of art and of life more generally. Within and beyond the world, Christ in the tabernacle, or as Hopkins would put it, Christ from cupboard fetched, reveals the dignity of the daily and its promised transformation when Christ comes again. The celebration of the Eucharist and the hearing of God's word encourages not only the arts, but also a particular way of being and moving in the world that is end-driven, directed towards praise and intercession. Newman marveled how certain spaces and kinds of art could help reflect this higher reality. For instance, he was known to especially love the Italian Gothic, as exampled in the Duomo of Milan. And here's a quote from his experience there. A Catholic cathedral is a sort of world. Everyone going about his own business, but that business a religious one. Groups of worshippers and solitary ones, kneeling, standing, some at shrines, some at altars, hearing mass and communicating, currents of worshippers, intercepting and passing by each other, altar after altar lit up for worship, like stars in the firmament, or the bell giving notice of what is going on in parts you do not see. And all the while, the canons and choir going through their hours, matins and lauds, or vespers, and at the end of it, the incense rolling up from the altar, and all this in one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And every day, lastly, all of this without any show or effort. But what everyone is used to, everyone at his own work, and leaving everyone to his. Thronging around altars, lit up for worship like stars in the firmament, the vibrant, varied life of worshippers in the Milan Duomo represents the life lived in hope of the second coming which is enjoyed as already and not yet through the liturgical life of the church. From this liturgical life, according to Newman, flows as a derivative friendships, definite service, what he calls an idea of a university, the art of living, which I think we could also call the art of the end. Thank you.